Welcome to another episode of Money You Should Ask. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler. And in this episode, we're going to explore, question, examine, converse, dig deep, expose, laugh, and cry about the money beliefs, money blocks, and life challenges of our next guest. Turn up the volume, listen, learn, and laugh. Many of us get financially stuck and can't seem to get unstuck. By taking baby steps and getting support, I was able to establish new financial habits. Fresh Start 2021 is a 28-day financial reset. I invite you to join us to clear out old money beliefs that are holding you back and create a new successful money mindset. Challenge your money worries and let's get financially fit in February. We have created daily activities to expand your mind and your monetary skills with easy, engaging tips and techniques. Dare to dream. Build a financial frame of mind and grow your money with care. Join us for the month of February on your favorite social media platform. Well, our next guest is Trudy Goodman, PhD. She is the founding teacher of Insight LA and co-founder of the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy. She has taught at universities and retreat centers worldwide for 25 years. Trudy has trained in mindfulness and Zen since 1973. She holds a graduate degree in developmental psychology from Harvard and is one of the senior Buddhist teachers in the U.S. She is widely known for her role as Trudy the Love Barbarian in the Netflix series Midnight Gospel, and that is super important, and we're going to talk about it. Trudy is also a contributing author uh, for such books as Clinical Handbook of Mindfulness, Compassion and Wisdom in Psychotherapy, and Mindfulness and Psychotherapy. She's also a mother, wife, and grandmother, which means she's a real-life person. Trudy, I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bob. A nice introduction. <laughs> it's so awesome. How are you doing in this time of, uh, I, you know, I know you have this motto uh, that uh, if we can't go out, if we can't go out, uh, so let's go in. If we can't go out, let's go in. Something like that. Is that, uh, uh, yeah, can you say a little bit more about that for people? Because we're having to do that. Yeah, we're having to do that. And we're having to do that so much more than we ever dreamed. And I'm yeah. so grateful that last March, I didn't know it was going to be a whole year. Can you imagine <laughs> if we had known that? No. Uh, I mean, we would have really freaked out. Yeah. Um, but really, that motto is just about how there is an inner world and an inner life that we generally ignore because we're so busy out there in our outer lives. And that inner life is something that, oh, you, we, you know, we might have um, maybe a handshake acquaintance with it. Yeah. But the pandemic... Uh, you know, even amidst all the misfortune that it has brought to so many people and profound losses, for sure. Mm -hmm. Sometimes because of that and because of the fact that we're kind of um, <laughs> under house arrest, so to speak, uh, the going in is easier to do because yeah. we don't have our usual outlets out there. And the way that, I mean, there's lots of ways to look within and get to know yourself. Uh, psychotherapy is one way and you know art is another way and uh, for me it's been meditation has been the way to do that to set aside periods of time where you know I'm not going to be interrupted and I can just be quiet and actually step back into just receiving my own being and life and just not having to anyone special during that time or do anything or go anywhere you know just having 
a little bit of, um, you could think of it as a Sabbath or something, you know, yeah. or just a period of time where you can just be. Because nothing really in our culture or external world values that or encourages us to take that kind of time. I mean, even children now are so scheduled. When I think of being a child in my own, you know, I had a pretty sheltered childhood and I was free to run around. And I mean, we lived in a little suburb. It wasn't like I had forests or anything, but we ran around in each yeah. other's yards and we we had time to just mess around and run around. And I don't see kids really having that anymore. And we also did that without our parents. Nobody was watching <laughs> Nobody was around. Us. Exactly. <laughs> I think some of us are lucky we survived. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, that's how parents today feel. Well, it's amazing you survived, you know? Yeah. And when you talk about that, having time for yourself, I mean, one of the things that I, it seems to me that we have a low tolerance for spending time with ourselves, having to actually sit with uh, ourselves, sit with the silence, sit with our money issues, like, it, you know, our relationships, like it's hard to tolerate that. I think we're not, it seems like that's not cultivated as much. And, and I think maybe that's where mindfulness comes in to help us to start to be comfortable in all of it. Yeah, I think that's right. It's, but it's, it, and it's also true that I think these principles of mindfulness and learning how to be present with experience and learning how to stay with it and learning, you know, just appreciating the miraculous power that our minds have to be that we can direct our attention anywhere. We can actually do that. We just don't learn in school that we can do it consciously and intentional, intentionally and to cultivate certain qualities um, of our hearts and spirits and, and also creativity enhances our creativity. But, you know, this, and this has been an issue for people for thousands of years, yeah. you know, all the ancient psychologies and philosophies address uh, this question of human consciousness and how we use it and do we use it for the good or not. But now today we have our uh, electronics, we have the devices. And so it's really never necessary to be alone anymore, right. to be alone with yourself. Yeah. And I remember when I would see people talking on the phone in their gross in the grocery store, and it was just like we never used to be able to always be connected the way we are today. And so it's challenging. It's challenging to practice mindfulness and awareness, <laughs> uh, as you say. And I, I always come back to this experiment they did, I think it was around 10 years ago now, um, at Harvard, about what is it that really makes people happy. And they yeah. uh, they tracked, I don't know, thousands of people yeah. and asked them what they were doing at certain points when they felt happy or unhappy. And you know what they discovered, which was that the happiness or the fulfillment that people felt did not depend on what activity they were engaged in. It depended on the quality of attention they were bringing to that activity. And you can imagine which activity was the easiest for people to pay attention to um, and which activities, you know, were a little more challenging. The activities that are the most fun for us and physically pleasurable, of course, are the easiest right. <laughs> to pay attention to. I don't have to say which ones those are. They're yeah. different for everybody, probably, but some the same. And 
uh, and that really struck me because it really showed me that all the things we're taught that would make us happy, you know, a certain vacation or stuff that we might want to buy, or I don't know, in my case, I always thought if I owned a home, it would make me happy. Um, I still don't. And I'm really happy, but, (laughs) or having a certain amount of money, you know, that that these Mm -hmm. things would make us happy, but it isn't actually what makes us happy is the quality of attention that we bring to what we're doing. And that kind of attention, I think is it really Bob is, a form of love. Uh, yeah. It's like, it's it's caring, caring enough to really listen, caring enough to really um, be undistracted as best we can. Yeah, I, it's so interesting when you were saying that I was thinking, and I think it was John Lennon that said this, or, or maybe somebody, but they asked him, what did he want to be when he grew up? And he said, happy, right? And they're like, wrong answer, right? Because you're supposed to be something um, as opposed to be. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And, and I know for me, I was taught you are your accomplishments and not by anybody's fault, but that's what society said. And so to focus on actually just being seems counterintuitive to, to what I was socialized to believe. Yeah. I remember once um, my dad worked for the World Health Organization for mm. about 35 years. So um, I did spend some time. Uh, in Switzerland. They lived in Geneva and outside of Geneva too. And I remember once going through the airport um, in Zurich to get there and seeing this huge billboard outside the window that said, uh, du bist was du hast, you are what you have. And I think it was an ad for a bank. Um, but that's that same conditioning. You know, right. we're, It's sort of like money is life's report card, right? And and our right. self-esteem rises and falls with how we're doing in that department. Um, one of the many departments that we're taught to pay attention to, but that's a big one. And I bring it up because I know that's your thing. It is. No, totally. I mean, it's self-worth and net worth are not the same things. <laughs> and I think we get them confused. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I really saw it too. Um, when I was on retreat and, traveling and kind of pilgrimage to India, uh, which is where the teachings that I teach originated, the teachings of Buddhist psychology and philosophy. And I remember seeing people, sometimes little families living on the sidewalk on the street. Now, this doesn't sound as stunning anymore because now we have lots of people living on our streets. But I'm talking, this was really, let's see how old I, this was probably... um, 20 years ago and we had homelessness then ever since Reagan, we've had it, but it wasn't as severe as it is of course now. But what I saw in the people's eyes there was joy. And I remember being surprised, like, how can you be joyful? You've got a new, you know, a little baby and you're living on the sidewalk. Um, You know what I mean? But Mm -hmm. it was so clear to me that the joy that people were taking in each other and their babies and you know, yeah. uh, their families. And it, it just didn't matter. And I'm not saying that healthcare doesn't matter and housing doesn't matter and all of that, because it does. And when you ask about the pandemic and, you know, obviously I am privileged to have food security, shelter, I'm warm and dry and, and uh, well-fed. So, I'm not saying those things don't matter. They do. But 
like you said, they are not what determine or have to determine your happiness. Yeah, I, I think the abundance is in the experiences and in the connections. And what I've observed in developing countries uh, is the need for community, the need for connection. And I think in the U.S. specifically, we're able to isolate and keep the people away from us that are undesirable or don't fit with our story. Um, and, 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 and actually we, it's a disservice to all of us, uh, because we are connected and we do need to be in community. Yes. Yes. And it's really, um, I think, I don't know if we're the country that has the most individualistic approach to life. Uh, we're certainly right up there. And yeah. um, that it really is based on a kind of myth or delusion that we are separate when we all not only need each other, but in the deepest sense, we are connected in this life. You know, it's like, have you ever heard of the Wood Wide well, Web? Wood Wide Web? I have it's, not. Tell okay, me. so this is the this is based on the research of uh, a woman named Suzanne Simard, who's a forest a scientist who studies forestry. I think in British Columbia, okay. and she discovered that the trees in the forest that look you know like they're standing separate trees, uh, yeah. and they are standing separate trees, but their root systems are all tied together by these yeah. tiny little fungi uh, that are like threads that are, and, and they have the capacity to send each other nutrients. Um, if one tree is being attacked or is failing in some way, the other trees can send some sugars through this little network. They, she's discovered, in fact, that trees know the difference between their own baby trees and the baby trees of other trees. Wow. And they actually give preference to caring first for their own baby trees. <laughs> and I, I mean, it's just, it's been, wow. it was fascinating for me to discover about this because I felt like this is our human life too. Yeah. It's a metaphor for our human life too. That, you know, and, and, you know, we don't hear about this so much in the news, but people are doing generous, compassionate, kind, beautiful things for each other. Yeah. Always, you know, yeah. everywhere. Um, I, I think it, it makes me sad that that's not newsworthy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's, it's important and it's true. And it's, it's our web of connection in this existence is through the kindness, I think, that we offer to each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you were young, is this like, did you say when you were seven years old, I think I want to focus on mindfulness and meditation or what were you, what were you thinking as a, as a young child? I was thinking about what young children think about how much I love my bicycle and <laughs> riding my bike and um, things like that. But I also, I was a sensitive child. Mm -hmm. I will say I have memories of Oh, like one of the things I wrote about in my in my new my book that I'm writing is I have this memory of being eight years old and sitting on the curb. In those days, moms pretty much were homemakers. Dads went to work, and the dads would get off. Um, I don't, I can't remember if it was a bus or a train, but they would walk home from there. Um, okay. And I remember sitting. I was waiting for my dad, of course, but whom I loved, and. But I would see all the dads, and I remember being able to see 
the way they walked and on their faces, like which ones were happy going home to a house, which ones were going home maybe to a sad situation, which ones. So that's the only thing I, and maybe all children can do that. But I remember I had these certain dads that I picked that were my, I called them my feel sorry dads, Um, (laughs) you know, and, and I don't know, I cared about their, I cared about their sadness somehow or their depression or whatever I was seeing in them. Mm -hmm. But no, I never thought about mindfulness kids. You know, kids are so much more present by nature because they're living lives, young children, especially, um, but really all the way up to maybe preteen or te- teenage years, they're living a life that is much less mediated by thought than right. adults. So they're naturally more present, which is part yeah. of why I've always liked working with them. Yeah. They, they live in the moment. They live in exactly. the moment. That's exactly. awesome. And did your parents, um, did they tell you about money? Was money discussed? Um did they encourage you to be a certain way? Like, what was it like uh, <laughs> for Trudy as a kid? Were there pressures to perform, to be something? Well, the last part first, pressures to perform and be something. Not overtly, mm-hmm. um, but my family really valued education. And so doing well in school was heavily rewarded with positive attention, I would say. (laughs) And, um, you know, I always had pretty severe ADD. So I would get these report cards, like four A's and two D's, these very odd report cards. And I don't remember my parents particularly shaming me or anything about that. I don't, it was, while education was valued and their favorite place for me or anybody to be was, you know, reading a book at home. You're safe. These were Jewish parents. We didn't play sports or touch football or anything. We read books on the couch at home. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And um, so there was um, a valuing of education, but I didn't feel pressured actually um, so much. I think if there was pressure, it was because uh, it was just because kids want to have good report cards or something. Do you know what I mean? It was yeah. more in, internal, but money, that's an interesting one because honestly, we didn't talk about money. My dad, um, during my growing up, he worked, uh, he was a physician, but he was an academic physician. So he worked, he did research at NIH. And so his salary was probably, I don't know what academic salaries were, but we were kind of like, maybe lower middle class growing Mm -hmm. up where I couldn't have all the clothes that the other girls had. My mom sewed my clothes um, for me. And so I definitely wished I could have maybe more clothes as a child, but Mm -hmm. we had plenty of, you know, there was never an issue about, about, um, you know, our utilities were always on. We always had food to eat. Uh, We always had clothes to wear. It was just, um, not a wealthy situation. But but the funny part is that my dad loved his work. My mom did volunteer work that she loved. Um, they were both very generous and I would say altruistic. My mom taught sewing classes to immigrant women so they could sew clothes for their families and maybe even have a livelihood eventually. Yeah. And But she did that as a volunteer. Um, and my dad... Uh, well, my dad 
when he went to the World Health Organization, he actually was the first person to notice and take action about the fact that the World Health Organization was studying the diseases of the developed countries, very much, you know, heart disease and cancer. And nobody was studying the tropical diseases that were wiping out like one child in five died of malaria in Africa. Um, So he started, they were both very altruistic and money was never discussed in relation to your work. Money was like a byproduct of your work. Mm-hmm. Nobody was working to earn money. Right. And when I married my first husband, I was shocked that to discover that he was working to earn money. <laughs> I know it sounds it sounds no, nuts. No, that's but, like right, right. But you know, he wasn't particularly idealistic. He was doing work to earn as much money as he could. Yeah. And I I remember being like sort of scratching my head, you know, and thinking, well, that doesn't seem very um, altruistic or, uh, you you know, I didn't appreciate, I didn't know how to appreciate that. Um, Later, I, of course, learned to appreciate the value (laughs) of that, but I didn't know how. And so money wasn't talked about to the point where I'll fast forward many years, um, and something happened by some mistake. I was sent a financial statement from my mom's T. Rowe Price account. And I saw there was, she, it was her savings. And I saw the amount of money that was in that account. It was, it was a five figure amount. So it was a nice amount, but it wasn't, you know, a huge amount. Right. And I remember I called her and said, Mom, you know, this, this statement came to me and, I, and she was horrified that I would see how much money was in her account. Wow. I, I, I can't tell you. I was, it was as if, I don't know, I had peeked into her underwear or something. Do you know what I mean? It was, yeah. like, it, it was a complete no-no to her. Yeah. And she was shocked and upset, which surprised me because I didn't, I don't know. It, it just, so I think that kind of family where you don't talk about money, um, it makes it a little hard to understand what money is really about or for. The good news is because we didn't have that much, um, there wasn't really ever a question of spending more than you had. Do you know what right. I mean? Like I just right. saw people manage their money. Okay. It was, they were frugal and it was fine. And, um, my mom made all these tuna sandwiches and put them in the freezer and they would be soggy in our lunch, but it was, <laughs> some, <laughs> yeah, it was some thrift measure that I didn't understand, uh, and still yeah. don't. But anyway, um, I guess I'm answering your question. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you, um, and from that, do you, I mean, I imagine then, uh, with your first husband, um, you probably didn't ask a lot of questions about his money beliefs or where he was financially. Um, it was just sort of maybe a trusting <laughs> or hoping. Yeah. Well, I didn't think about it. That's yeah. the thing. It's so when I, when I think back, okay, I, because we didn't have that much money, I got a full scholarship to my college. Yeah. Um, it's a totally free ride, but my parents, they, they never sent me any spending money. So I worked in the dining hall. I worked in the school store, bookstore. I worked 
I worked through college for my spending money. Yeah. But I, but it didn't really, I, I don't think it occurred to them that they were supposed right. to send me money. Right. This is yeah. how clueless we all were. Yeah. And then I yeah. just thought, okay, you work to earn money. And I always joke that I married my first husband because he bought me a bathing suit. Um, <laughs> my parents were overseas. It was summertime. <laughs> I didn't have a bathing suit. He bought me a bikini. But that, um, well, there were other reasons I married him too. <laughs> In fact, I'll tell you the story because yeah. sometimes I'm embarrassed about having you know, being on my third marriage, but here's the first one. I'm 21. I've graduated from college and my boyfriend tells me that if I won't marry him, he's going to leave me. I, I was too young to get married. I didn't want to get married. And I called my parents overseas phone call, which was a big deal in those days, Bob. Yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) I called my parents and I'm like, Jimmy's telling me that if I don't marry him, he's going to leave me and I don't want to get married. I'm too young. I just got out of school. And my mom says to me quietly, but sweetly, so honey, are you sleeping with him? (laughs) And I say, yes. And she says, well, then you have to marry him. (laughs) Those were the days, right? Those were the days. Wow. (laughs) And my dad didn't say boo. He didn't say, oh, no, no, she doesn't. They both that, you know, so um, that marriage actually didn't last very long, not surprisingly, but. Did you keep the bikini? I kept the bikini. <laughs> okay. Just checking. I kept the baby, okay. <laughs> which I'm very happy to have gotten, <laughs> yeah. to have had. Um, and I think that, you know, I never really cared about having money, Bob. Yeah. I married people who were like meditation teachers. And um, I mean, my current husband is a meditation teacher who's written lots of books and has done pretty well for a meditation teacher but if you put him up against a successful businessman it would be no uh-uh, kind of pathetic financially but that isn't ever what has mattered uh yeah. to me and and i have no i don't really have any judgment anymore about people to whom it does matter for example it mattered to my daughter because we never, I didn't pay attention. We didn't have money. We were eating saltines. And I mean, I can't, you know, it, those were also kind of hippie days. And I yeah. was in graduate school and we just, so it has mattered to her to have yeah. nice things and to have, not to have to think about it and to be able to offer her kids um, things that she didn't really get to have. So do you know what I mean? It just really yeah, totally. depends. Totally. Well, to that point, um, with your daughter and, and the marriages, I'm wondering how did or does gender play a role in your journey and maybe your daughter's journey? Because as a woman, there may, I would imagine, have been a few more challenges, just like you need to marry him um, kind of things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um would you say the question again? I'm not yeah, exactly just, clear. Yeah, just how does gender play a role? Um, how did it play a role in your journey? Like being a woman. Oh, okay, okay. You know, there may, I'm imagining there have been road bumps. Okay, so the biggest road bump right away was um, my first marriage, realizing that I was expected as a wife to like, 
pick up after him. <laughs> I mean, we're kids. I mean, I'm 21. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. what? Yeah. You're, you leave your stuff on the floor and I'm supposed to pick it up? <laughs> like, what is this? I mean, I wasn't. <laughs> I, it worked well I for him. <laughs> I mean, it just was, yeah. So there were kind of weird wake-ups like that. Like, I think, you know, like parents now looking back, I realized they were pretty bohemian. They shared housework. They shared, they just shared a lot of stuff. And so I didn't, now my mom was a homemaker. My dad went, you know, went to work. Um, But I would say that, in my first marriage, gender played a role of like a kind of horrible awakening to yeah. me. And, and then shortly after we went apart, there, there was this second wave of feminism where women, we began to have consciousness raising groups. This is like 1971. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember the awakening, Bob, of just one night, I remember I was walking outside it was dark and I was looking in the lighted windows of houses and thinking oh my god in every one of these houses there's a wife she's making dinner she's cleaning up she's taking care of the kids she's it was just I mean I think I probably can't convey the stunningness of what I felt in that moment yeah but I think really from that moment I didn't want to be in that mold I didn't ever want to fit into that mold. And all my subsequent relationships were with people where we shared everything really equally, the money, the housework, the childcare, everything pretty equally. No, that's, yeah, I can only imagine. Um, I have several sisters and I've seen the impact in how they were treated different um, than how I got treated. Um, in the family right. and, and at the, in the world at large. Um, do you treat with that awareness? Did you talk to your daughter about being able to be anything she wanted or did you, did you consciously intentionally have conversations with her? Oh, definitely. Definitely. And she always felt she could be what she wanted. Yeah. You know, at one point she wanted to be a journalist and she did some work with that. And then she connected um, my, my first husband wound up um he actually committed suicide not while we were together so she connected with his family they were all lawyers she actually wound up going to law school she always felt she could do what and i think she still does feel that she can do whatever she wants to do she puts her mind to it and wants to put the work in she can and she knows that deeply and i was having a conversation with my granddaughter who's 19 and who has just you know, this is her freshman year in college, which is, of course, not on campus, but right. some some people are, but she's not. And so she's been, um, uh, she actually stayed in my place for the first semester, and I was up at Jack's. Um, we've gone back and forth because his meditation center is up here, mine's down <laughs> there. But the pandemic has been great, Bob, because we've been together nonstop, and it's really fun. So anyway, she moved out of the house but couldn't go off to school. Right. But she said that it's really interesting for her to watch her brother, who's he's about to turn 17. He's a junior in high okay. school. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said he can go out until 1 in the morning. He comes home, and they say, 
oh, did you have fun? How was it? Or something. She said, if I came home at one in the morning, I would be interrogated. Who were you with? What were you doing? Why were you out so late? So there's still a double standard, Mm -hmm. even today, 21st century. Absolutely. uh, Child rearing, you know. And I guess the difference is that she's very aware of it and can talk about it. Yeah. Which we didn't, I don't, you know, we didn't really notice or we didn't know how to notice until, like I said, until the women's movement came along. Yeah. And I think you have to be aware that the system is rigged against you to be able to (laughs) work the system. Um, Yes. Right. Because you can drive yourself crazy going, why I'm feeling crazy when it's actually the system that's driving you crazy, not yourself. And you can see this today with all of the racialized, um, you know, all the racial unrest. And it's like people are beginning to realize the game is, I mean, they've known it intuitively that it's all rigged against them and, and redlining and people trying to buy houses. I mean, they've known yeah. that there's been all of this um, prejudice and bias and unfair um, structural setups in our yeah. society. But it's all becoming so much more visible now. And I think it does free the hearts of people who were blaming themselves for maybe right. not getting to where they needed to be instead of realizing I have to work, you know, as a woman, a black woman or a brown woman, I have to work 10 times harder than anybody else to get to the same place. Right. Yeah. Right. They're starting 10,000 feet from behind the starting line. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you know that and you're aware of that and you understand that, it's not like you're, I mean, you still have to do it, but you at least don't internalize that it's something you should be ashamed of or blame yourself for. Yeah. And in your own personal life, are there places where you still um, have struggles around like money beliefs or are there any things that you still carry? Um, like I know you were talking about uh, your mom made your clothes and, and my mom made our clothes and I, for me, there was this little bit of like, oh, it would be, I would be much more successful if we bought my clothes instead of having to wear the clothes, right? And so I, I still carry that scarcity mindset sometimes into my life and I'm aware of it, but it creeps in. And I'm wondering if there's any of those kinds of things where you still struggle because I think for a lot of people, they think, oh, if I deal with it once, I never have to address it again. And life is life. It's going to keep coming up. Yeah, yeah. It's not like that. I mean, you know, I always would tell people during meditation retreats, which are very hard to do, to be in silence and be with yourself, you know, hour after hour after hour. And, you know, and people would come in sometimes who had been doing this for a while and really working at it for sometimes years. And they'd say, and this stuff is still coming up. And I would say, well, whose stuff would be coming up? Would it be Bob's stuff that would be coming up in you? You know, would I be having your issues? No, our patterns and our issues. That's, I feel like that's our life koan. That's our life um, uh, dilemma or riddle or question to solve. And for me, I have noticed that I was talking, I was telling Jack, my husband too, that I don't like shopping, but I really like having new clothes. And I think it, does go back to those childhood experiences yeah. because you know you know people often ask well if you had all this money what would you want 
And then I always think, what is it that I would want if it's something that you could buy? Talking about things you can buy, right? Right, right. And always I think of, well, maybe some pretty new things to wear. <laughs> that's just, <Yeah. laughs> and it's not like I have so many or any, but that's, I mean, we actually had this conversation the other day. He's like, well, you don't really need anything. I was like, no, I don't. But it's just fun to have some new things um, right. from time to time. So I noticed that. And I also noticed that um, sometimes I'm still really frugal in ways I don't need to be anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and it's not like it gets in my way or anything. I just notice it. Like I'll be outside. In the days when I could spend time in the grocery store, I would sometimes kind of perseverate over, you know, this thing costs three pennies more than this thing and and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And do you and what's the story like if you could share the inner dialogue that goes on when you're having those moments of frugality or I could save four cents? Like what's the backstory? I actually think that that's a time when I'm not conscious. I'm not aware. I'm just being driven by this old habit. Mm-hmm. Um, so there isn't, you know, the backstory would be your only, your money has to go this far and you only have this much. And so you have to be very careful how you steward it and how you plan it and how you use it and what you buy and all that. But in reality, um, my time became so much more valuable and getting lost in those kinds of things and spending way too much time is more expensive than spending the extra four cents. Do you know? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, when you get old, I mean, I'm really older. My dad always said you're middle-aged until you're 75. Well, guess what? (laughs) I'm not middle-aged anymore. (laughs) So we won't tell. But then you see, oh, wow, actually, I don't have all the time in the world, you know? And so there's a tendency not to want to even worry a bit about things like that. And the other thing is, I'll tell you a story. I've told this story, too, um, when I've been writing, is uh, in the early days of Inside LA, the nonprofit that I founded, I wasn't, I've never been good at... um, like planning five years from now or doing a timeline, that kind of strategic planning. My brain just doesn't work like that. Um, And so there was a man who was on our early board of directors, um, Michael Sigmund, who volunteered to help me. And he came over and we had this big pad and we were kind of like stretching it out. And I couldn't, I I think he was puzzled because I didn't have any clue of how to do this or, and he, he kind of looked at me in this puzzled way. And I said, don't worry, I have a trust fund. And you should have seen the look on his face. His face just kind of, you could tell him, just, you just hear him thinking, why am I volunteering and helping her? She's got a trust fund. Gosh, and darn then, it. <laughs> right. What am I doing? And then I said to him, you know, it's an inner trust fund. It's an inner trust fund. I just trust. It's like, I've been okay until now. Why would I not be okay? If you want to know your future, look at your present in a way, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, apart from, you know, pandemics and things that we have no control over in life. um, So the inner trust fund is really important in relation to money too. Yeah. 
Um, and I saw when I worked for 25 years as a psychotherapist in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in a variety of settings. But I also had a private practice. Um, I worked in lots of schools with lots of kids and teachers. But, but I also had a private practice, Bob, where um, in the summer it would kind of drop off because a lot of people would be away or around the holidays. It really, And I noticed that uh, when I felt I needed to have more work, because summer was coming, for example, and bills didn't stop, even if business right. <laughs> was slower, I would magically get referrals. It, it felt like magic, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And when I would be feeling like overworked and oh my, I can't find time for one more person, somebody would move away or, <laughs> or right. graduate or something <laughs> from their therapy. Yeah. So I think the trust it, it's a it's a tricky thing to talk about because i don't advocate being clueless about your money and not right. being planful or anything like that right. but there's another element and maybe you see it in your work and i'd be curious to know if you do but there's another element which does have to do with trust Absolutely. and i have seen it work in my life so what i'm curious do you yeah do you I, see I, that? I definitely do and i you know, it's interesting. I work with a lot of different groups and I work with uh, um, some spiritual groups where sometimes uh, they're more, you know, they're, I don't want to say clueless, but there's a little bit of, I'm just going to hope and pray that it works out, but they're not necessarily being conscious and intentional and having the awareness of, oh, I can trust this. Um, but I do have many clients and friends that have this inner trust that, you know what? This is going to be a success. Uh, this thing is going to work out. Yeah, but uh, you're about to fall off the cliff. Yep, but uh, something's going to come right before it gets to the mo- to the to the end. And and there's just such this energy of confidence that it feels like it just perpetuates that uh, that trust, that confidence of just knowing um, it's all going to work out. It's all going to be good. However, it unfolds, it's going to be amazing. And it, I, it really, I feel like it is such a mindset, um, of choosing to trust and knowing that, that it will work out because it usually does. That's the amazing thing. Yeah. And what you said, whatever happens or however it works out. That's right. I think that's the key because. We can't sometimes control how it actually works out, but we can control our attitude about it. And if right. our attitude is basically um, one of cheerful confidence, yeah. then even if it isn't exactly working out the way we thought, we can find a way to be with that and to live with that and maybe to shift that uh, when we have that confidence and trust. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's just... Um I think when we can trust that there's, you know, I know that when people, a lot of times when they, things don't come together and stuff like that, they also have a mindset that it's not going to work out. And I think humans like to be right. (laughs) And so there's a lot of self-fulfilling prophecy of like, yep, I'm not going to win. This isn't going to succeed. And then we, and, and then we unconsciously go in with that energy and then we go, see, I was right. That's and, so interesting. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. Do I want to be yeah. right or do I want to be happy? And yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I often see that in couples where they'll come in and they go, "We have a bet, and somebody gets dinner tonight. Who's wrong?" And I'll 
and I usually offer to them, well, are you guys on the same team or is this uh, a competition? And right. and then there's a big pause and they're like, oh my, uh, <laughs> no, no, we're on the same team. We're on the same team. I'm like, okay, okay. Because uh, we get caught up in that um, instead of looking around and seeing the abundance and all the things that we do have. Um, and so cultivating that mindset for me is starting to realize being grateful for what I have instead of, oh, I don't have that. No, I don't have that. Let me run a little faster. Um, but like, wow, I'm breathing. <laughs> I have basic needs met. Um, because a lot which is some, huge. Which is huge. Especially right now. Especially right now, because a lot of people don't have that. That's right. Yeah. And um, I want to read... I want to read uh, a mess, a quote that you have um, that I, that really was for me really powerful. Um, and it's in it. You, it's basically um, that you want to share that healing is possible for everyone. And the quote is, you can recover from even the most devastating losses when you're willing to learn about who you most truly are and are open to an awareness that extends way beyond our limited individual self to encompass the entire world. Yeah. And like for me, that is, I mean, to me, that is the ultimate expression of mindfulness um, and how we connect in the world, whether it's money, whether it's relationships, like all of it. It's like we have to keep exploring all of who we are, even the parts that aren't so pretty. Oh, yeah, especially those, actually. Yeah, we have to highlight them and bring them into the light so that we can remove the shame about it, um, so that we don't have to hide our bank accounts or hide our previous failures, what I like to call lessons, um, not failures, but um, to really get more conscious and connected um, so that we can actually understand our impact. Yeah, and we're bringing the not pretty parts to light by offering attention to all of who we are. And those parts, they need attention actually to, to, to be accepted and healed and to realize, Oh, you know, maybe I'm feeling completely caught in a state of despair because of a breakup or, a financial loss or whatever yeah. it might be. Um, you know, I have a friend, they lost their money in the Bernie Madoff thing and they thought they were wealthy and then they weren't. And they, Oh my God. And in that moment, when, when we can be mindful of what it feels like fully to be in that moment and just allow ourselves to have those feelings, there's another step that we can say, Oh, this is what it feels like to be a human being who is in despair. This yeah. feels this way in the body. These are the stories it generates in the mind. It's like this. And, and in that moment, you, I can connect with everybody in the world who has ever felt despair. Yeah. And so instead of it being this isolating experience where you feel ashamed and set apart, you can actually feel connected to all of humanity in, in that difficult moment. So that's one way that that the mindfulness really helps. And when I say know who you truly are, that means we understand that whatever emotion we're in the grip of is not all of who we are. And that, you know, my sadness or my 
joy or my, it's not all of who I am. It's, yeah. it's like a psychic snapshot of a moment, you know, when we're really all like moments in progress. And when we can see our life that way and see ourselves that way, we actually connect to something just a lot more vast, yeah. um, a consciousness that we're part of it. Instead of, I guess one way I would experience it or say it is like, instead of thinking I'm um, going to put this clearly, instead of thinking consciousness is sort of up here mm-hmm. and it, it's encapsulated in this meanness and everything else is out there, you can actually have a felt sense of your awareness, your love, your consciousness, whatever you want to call it, um, being all of this, mm-hmm. all of this. And then the individual me, the Bob, the Trudy, you know, the you, the me, is like one facet of that jewel. And I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. to me, this is a very healing realization. Um, the, the realization that whatever I'm feeling is what humans feel when yeah. it's like this. And then the realization that I'm just so much bigger than I think, than, than any of my thoughts can capture. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and if I turn, if I reflect that in terms of like financial success or, uh, 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 uh you know, stepping out in the world, um, uh-huh. having that mindfulness, having that aware, awareness, that consciousness, um, helps you to stand in whatever comes your way. For example, um, I held back for many years because people were like, you're going to be really successful. And I was terrified to step up and be in leadership. I was terrified to step up and take a stand because people might judge me. People might not rally for my success. And there's all these things. And if I don't have a mind, and, and once I realized, oh, these things still might happen, but it's still worth the risk. Like to show up fully as who I am, I'm going to step up and there might be criticism and there might not be everybody that agrees with me. And, but at least if I can tolerate and know that that might be coming, I'm freer to step in and be all of who I am and not let those things take me out. Yeah. Not let those things be totally in charge of you. And I think that's the other piece of being willing to know all of who we are is that anything that we don't want to know about that we put outside of awareness actually has power over us because we're not aware of it. And it can be determining our actions and behaviors and things we say without our even realizing it, you know? So that's another reason to be aware is that then it doesn't have to be in charge of who we are and what we do. Yeah. It's actually freedom. (laughs) I think that's the word for it. Yeah. It feels, feels freeing. Yeah. We are at fast five, so I, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna switch a little bit, and um, I could yeah, this has just been so awesome. But um, I'm gonna ask you fast five questions and uh, just quick answers. Um, okay, no right I'm or ready. wrong. All right, I'm how ready. many pil- how many pillows do you sleep with? Um, two. <laughs> how often do you buy clothes? Oh, not so often. Um, I would say when I can these days. Maybe every few months I'll buy a few things. 
Yeah, we can go shopping. That's about how often. Yes. Yes. <laughs> what makes I you- love I love my things. As soon as I get them home, I unpack them and look at them and I wear them right away. And it's like being a kid. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. It's like candy in a candy store. <laughs> uh, what makes you laugh the most? Oh, so many things. <laughs> I think, oh gosh, what makes me laugh the most? Just how silly and absurd the world can be when you, as Wavy Gravy, a famous clown of um, the last century, would say, if you don't have a sense of humor, it's not very funny. <laughs> I know. It takes I a minute. I love that. I love that. It takes a minute. Yeah. That's awesome. That's a good quote. Uh, love or hate roller coasters? Oh, love, hate. <laughs> Love, right, hate. love hate. I love it. I love it. Uh, best gift you ever got. Best gift you ever received. Oh my gosh. The best gift I ever received would have to be my, my daughter. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a beautiful gift. That's a beautiful gift. Well, we're at our M&M sweet spot moment. So can you share a practical tip that, um, that you use in dealing with your money? Um, or a piece of wealth wisdom, something that you've learned in, in when you navigate your finances? Yes. What I have learned is that I actually need help and support to track my money and to um, navigate my finances. And I, I say that because, first of all, I'm just not good at it. I sat my daughter down when she went to college and I said, I'm going to teach you how to balance your checkbook. This is a life skill you'll need. I can't tell you how many hours later I couldn't do it. I thought I knew how. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I couldn't yeah. do it. And so there's, and I can say this because I do have smart parts of my brain, mm-hmm. but the, the tracking of things is not a smart part of my brain. So, I think the wisdom to know what are your strengths and what are your areas where you actually need support. Um, it can be a friend. It can be a partner. It can be Bob. It can be, you know, somebody knowledgeable. Um, but, and I mean, honestly, I even recommend people to go to DA to the 12 step program because there's so much knowledge there that's for free. You know, if you can't afford an accountant to help you or, um, you know, whatever help you need. So that would be, I think the most important thing is to just, it's, it it comes, it's part of knowing yourself and not beating yourself up about the things that you're not good at, or maybe don't know how to do in this lifetime. You might never be good at them. Yeah. And, and feeling fine about finding people who are good at those things Yeah, and understand them better. No, that's so awesome. Yeah, I mean, I really like what I'm hearing there is uh, in a way of cultivating a non-shaming heart, so to speak, to like welcoming, like, these are my strengths. These aren't my strengths. Um, right. It's okay to ask for help. Um, and just even going back to when you talked about making the D, the A's and the D, uh, that non-shaming environment of, right. okay, well, you made, you made a bunch of A's, you made a couple of D's and not making it the definition of who you are um, and that even in our past history um, it's information like um, that we don't have to, Oh wow. I messed that up. Oh, okay. I was naive. Uh, That was eye opening. And, and just um, which 
intrinsically brings in the curiosity, I guess, of like, wow, isn't that interesting? I didn't know that before. Well, I think that's the key is the curiosity. And don't get me wrong. I felt plenty of shame and frustration about my brain and what it could and couldn't do all my life. So that's definitely been a struggle. But, But the curiosity, the interest, instead of the blaming and judgment and shaming, like getting curious. So why is it like this? How is it? How can it be helped or supported or changed if it needs to be? That You named it. That's really, really key. In fact, in the Buddhist tradition, um, that quality of curiosity, they call it investigation, you know, exploration. Ah. And it's one of the elements or factors of enlightenment, of awakening. Ah. Wow. That's, and I love curiosity. So that that's, I'm going to, I'm going to so find out more. <laughs> yeah. You're more enlightened than you know. <laughs> oh, wow. I love it. I love it. Um, and I want to say to everybody out there, don't start, uh, don't forget to start building an internal trust fund because I, I love the way that you put that. Uh, we do need to start, um, trusting more for those out there that don't trust themselves. You, you're inner, you have an inner knowing and, you do you do and and as i said don't get me wrong it took me a long time to um uh to fund my inner trust fund (laughs) with the qualities that i needed you know and get over all my fears and anxieties and you know the things that you have when you're young and 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 all the way through actually it's just a question of do we let them stop us or not absolutely um where can people find you on social media social media online yeah. Um, so I do have a website, trudygoodman.com, and I have uh, a meditation center that I founded. It's called Insight LA, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-L-A.org. And I teach every Sunday morning through Insight LA from 11 to 1230 Pacific time. And with Zoom, no excuse, y'all. You can come <laughs> wherever Absolutely. you are. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll put that link up yeah. so people can come in and join you. Um, and yeah. you've got a new book that's going to be coming out as you're writing it right now, but we'll. I'm writing it right it. now. So you'll I'm have to let us know when that's it. ready. Yeah. I we, sure will. I sure will. I'll come back when it's ready. It, um, it has a tentative title, hmm? but I don't want to talk about it yet. Okay. I'm a little awesome. bit. Yeah, yeah, I'm a little bit just trying to save that energy for the writing because when I start talking growing. about it, yep, I don't write. Still incubating. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I so appreciate it. I just want to say to our listeners out there, please don't forget to share the love. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Search for Money You Should Ask, all one word. Subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player or visit podchaser.com and search for Money You Should Ask or click on the link below. If you prefer watching our episodes, head over to YouTube and subscribe to our channel. For more tips, tools, or to learn more about your money nerve, visit themoneynerve.com. Trudy, this has been such a pleasure. I, yeah, it's it's just been awesome. I'm so grateful that you've come on and shared your wisdom and your experience. And I just wish you the best. And I'm excited about the new book coming out. And Thank you, Bob. Yeah, just really grateful. Thank you. It was a total pleasure. Really fun. <laughs> <laughs>